Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we begin a new study in the minor prophet Zechariah, the first chapter. Before we jump into the text itself, a little bit of an overview, a background here. Zephaniah is going to be written somewhere in the range of 641 through 609 BC. We can say that confidently because it is said in verse 1 today that it is during the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. That would be the years uh, roughly to his reign. There are a couple other Zephaniahs. It's not a name that you won't see in the Old Testament. But this does appear to be the only time we see this Zephaniah. So there's a Zephaniah mentioned several times in the book of Jeremiah. That same Zephaniah also appears in 2 Kings chapter 25. He's a priest who opposes the word of God and takes part in actions against the prophet Jeremiah. And then there is another Zephaniah who is mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 simply as part of uh, an ancestry, a line, a genealogy. This Zephaniah doesn't seem to appear, our, our Zephaniah, the minor prophet, anywhere else in Scripture. The basic overview of this book in three chapters, sin brings judgment and destruction, and yet God has a plan for mercy. Or, said another way, the day of Yahweh is coming. For those who oppose him, that day is going to be terrible. But for those who are humble, those who have repented, those who follow and trust in Yahweh, that day will be glorious. So let's read the text. The word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to Yahweh and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following Yahweh, who do not seek Yahweh or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh. For the day of Yahweh is near. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares Yahweh, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of Yahweh is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of Yahweh is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. 
A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against Yahweh. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of Yahweh. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Certainly not a positive, uplifting ending to this chapter, but let's take a look together here. First, I want to note that this Zephaniah, again written during 641 to 609, the reign of Josiah, he is the great-great-grandson of Judah's king Hezekiah. So he's got a connection that brings Josiah's reforms, because there are reforms in Josiah's time. There's a connection, certainly, between Josiah's reforms and Hezekiah's reforms, especially if Josiah the king was listening to the word of God that came through Zephaniah. But, again, judgment is the declaration of this chapter. Now, this is a twofold prophecy. In fact, much of the prophecy in the Old Testament is. In other words, uh, twofold happens twice. You're going to have a first occurrence of the prophecy being fulfilled in the near future. And then a second occurrence of the prophecy being fulfilled that is somehow connected to Christ and what he has done for us. Or will do for us. I should probably phrase it here because the second part of this prophecy points us forward to the return of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament, the day of Yahweh, is often a referent to the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down of the temple, the people of God being carried away into exile in a foreign land, but it doubles, again, the second meaning, the twofold prophecy part, is the day of Christ's return. The day when all people are raised from the dead, gathered together before the judgment throne of God, and he separates the sheep from the goats, as is said in Matthew 25, with those who are of faith, those who trust in him, being welcomed into paradise, raised to life, while those who have rejected him and chosen instead to cling to their sin, they are raised to judgment, severed from God and from all that is good and sent to the fiery pit of hell. You can see this twofold prophecy as we move our way through this text, and so it begins swiftly. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, man and beast, bird, fish, Already there with the note of fish, this is stronger than the flood. The flood did not sweep away fish, only the things that lived on land, and also the birds because they had nowhere to land, were the things judged there. There's never a mention in Genesis 6 or 7 of trouble to the fish. Now we can imagine some of them probably did indeed die in the, the just tumultuous nature of that event, as the seas were tossing to and fro and so forth. But this is, again, more potent than the flood. 
this is going to impact all of creation. That already points us to something more than 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. This is a global judgment, and so we think to the last day when God will indeed bring about an end to this heaven and this earth as he then brings forth and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, the paradise that he's preparing for us even now. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. That is indeed the picture as you look to the book of Revelation or 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, texts that speak of the end of the world. We are caught up. We are brought before the judgment throne and then, again, either welcomed into the new creation or not. So man will be removed from this earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. So here's where we can zero in, focus more on that specific first appearance of this prophecy being fulfilled in 587 with the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. He's going to stretch out his hand against them, so that is his judgment, his action, his sword, cutting them off because, well, among them is the remnant of Baal. That is, they worship the Canaanite god, think he's the god of the sea or god of thunder, kind of in a Canaanite view, but he's probably the most common false god mentioned in the Old Testament. Sometimes his name even gets used generically of false gods. The idolatrous priests, so priests who are worshiping these false gods and serving them and sacrificing to them, and then those who have bowed down to the various hosts of heaven. So the idea that people are worshiping the things they see in the sky, like the sun. Egypt had a sun god, Ra, or the moon. Various mythologies have a moon god as well. The stars. We can think even today of astrology and trying to figure out your your zodiac sign and, and all those sorts of things. And people have done far more with that than I think most people see that as today, but it's still dangerous stuff. Then we even see kind of a a polytheistic religion going on in Judah, as some people still claim that they worship Yahweh, while at the same time worshiping Milcom. Now, Milcom is another name for Molech, much better known as Molech, the god of the Ammonites to whom they sacrifice their children. And that was going on in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, just south of Jerusalem, which becomes in the New Testament era known as Gehenna, and is even viewed as a reference to hell because of how awful the things were that were happening in that valley. Again, related to the sacrificing of their own children. Those who have turned from following Yahweh, who do not seek him. Because they have abandoned God, and they trust in the works of their own hands and false gods and so forth, in their own pride, God's judgment comes. This is the penalty, the punishment for our sin which we will see as the chapter progresses as well. I mean, really, 17 says it very easily. Because they have sinned against Yahweh, their blood shall be poured out like dust. That's it. That's the punishment for sin is death. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is near. What can we say? 
What could you or I possibly say before the judgment throne of God that would get us justice? Mercy, forgiveness. There is nothing I can say to justify my sin, to make a defense for the things that I have done wrong. Better to remain silent. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now, in the first fulfillment of this prophecy, this is dark. It actually pictures God's people, Judah, as the sacrifice, and his guests as the foreign invading army of Babylon who comes to eat, to destroy. And so they'll tear down even the temple and carry the pieces back. Now, how about the second part, though? Let's make this again. Look at the twofold prophecy nature of this. Can you think, ask your kids, can you think of a time where God prepared a sacrifice for us and welcomed us as his guests? Hopefully you can see the Lord's Supper, perhaps, in this, that God has offered up his own son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice that takes away our sin and then invited us to be his guests at his table, to partake of his body and blood for that forgiveness that we so desperately need. There's a very different nature to the, the way that verse would play out, looking at it in the light of Jesus. On the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons who array themselves in foreign attire, So instead of dressing as God has told his people to dress, they dress like the lands around them. This isn't to say that you can't wear, I don't know, whatever the other culture next door would wear. But it is the idea that in Exodus 28, God gave the priests very specific garments to wear as they served him in his house. And now, perhaps, they're not wearing those, but instead wearing the garments that are worn to serve Baal or Milcom slash Molech. God gave men of Israel to wear these tunics that had tassels on all four corners. You can find that in Numbers chapter 15. The whole point of that was so that whenever they saw the tassels, they would be reminded of the word of God. They're not wearing those anymore, it would appear. So they have given up the things that were supposed to point them to God. They've exchanged them for lesser things. There's something to holiness. And that's not even just talking about our holiness, our perfection. We have fallen short of that. But holy things, things God has put into this creation to point us back to himself. There's something to be said for having a holiness to the way that we worship. That it shouldn't look like the nations around us. It shouldn't look like our culture. It should look different. This is good because it points us away from the things of everyday life. It points us away from the sin and the temptation that so often run amok among us. It points us to Christ. So on that day I will punish. So the ones who leap over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud... I can see the first referent going one of a couple of ways. Leaping over the threshold could be simply the excitement of a a man as he would come and enter his house or into the temple that he's 
he's doing so excitedly because he's so engrossed in his sin in this picture. The other option here is uh, the practice of the Philistines, that they never stepped on the threshold of the, the god Dagon, his temple. So it could be a reference to that false worship again amongst the Israelites, and then filling their master's house with violence and fraud. This would be like Jesus cleansing the temple in the New Testament, the master's house, the temple, the house of God. It's been turned into a market, a den of robbers. So on that day, declares Yahweh, the reference is here, all of the people, all of the land. Fishgate is on the north side of Jerusalem, second quarter, usually believed to be on the west, crashing in the hills, so even all around it. Wail, everyone. All the traitors are no more. The idea that God's destruction, his judgment, will be thorough. And that's going to be seen in the next verse. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. You can't hide in the darkness. Crouch in a dark corner or something like that. The Lord will find all. He will punish the men. Those who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. This could either say that he is uncaring, so he's not even paying attention, or it's to say he doesn't exist. As they worship other gods, they worship other idols, they no longer believe Yahweh is a god. Verse 13 is going to sound very much like other prophets. Amos 5.11, Micah 6.15 speak very similarly. The idea that they build houses, but they won't get to live in them, planted vineyards, but won't get to drink their wine. So they're living, they're doing the things that they normally do, and then judgment comes, and those things come to an end. You planted your vineyard, but then God's judgment hit, and you were never even able to enjoy it. The things of this world don't matter. It is our faith, our trust in the Lord that does. So the great day of Yahweh is near, near, and hastening fast. The rest of that section there, for the next couple of verses, describing the day of Yahweh as an awful thing because it's viewing it from the perspective of a sinner. In the light of a sinner, the day of God, the day of Yahweh, is a day of judgment, damnation for us. However, verse 14, the great day of Yahweh is near. Ask your children, is this promise and threat still also true for us today? And the answer to that is yes. Again, the twofold prophecy, the second part of this is being fulfilled in Christ's return on the last day. And while, yes, we are sinners, we are sinners who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And on his return on the final day, it's going to be a day of great glory for the Lord and a day where he welcomes us into his home, his kingdom, his paradise. So it won't be a day of great wrath and distress and anguish for us, although it will be for many. Who bring distress on mankind, they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. So we've mentioned that verse already. Very short summary of the consequence of sin. Sin brings death, but Christ brings life. Verse 18, neither silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of Yahweh. Even the greatest of our works, the richest of our wealth, we have nothing to offer God. Silver and gold? He owns it anyway. It's already his. And we can't bribe our way or buy our way into paradise. 
A full and sudden end is coming. The earth will be consumed. So this again, that's stronger than what we know happens in 587. 587 is just a glimpse when Jerusalem falls. This is a reference to the end of the world. But in Christ's return, there is great mercy. And we'll see much more of that in chapter 3.